Your turn to greet your neighbors. So is everybody sitting in the back because I've been sick or what? <laughs> Tonight we are going to finish our, stu- our studies in numeretics. We've had four studies. Just looking through this relationship of numbers and concepts within the Scripture. Next Sunday night we are going to have our question and answer night. So again, if you have any questions, write them on a prayer request and put them in the agape box and we'll gather them together and we'll go through them Also, we're encouraging you to bring some sort of hors d'oeuvre. We're going to have a time of fellowship after. So again, if you don't have many questions, bring a lot of hors d'oeuvres. But if you have a lot of questions, you can bring few hors d'oeuvres. See how that works. So once again, we're we're looking at, going through, looking at specific numbers. We've done 1 through 7 so far. We're going to look at numbers 8, 12, and 40 tonight. After that, it kind of gets... The people who do studies on things, it kind of gets weird. Not heretical weird, but they're saying, for instance, number 18, if you take number 12 and you add 6 to it and multiply it by 3 and divide by 4, you know, they're kind of getting some weird things and it's just kind of a reach. And so, again, we're not looking at any kinds of codes or any kind of secret things. Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us that the secret things are the Lord's and we're good with that. And what has been revealed is good for, well, a lifetime of learning. But what we're looking for is basically study aids through these numbers that when we see these numbers appear, we can kind of look at different clues and different concepts and see the direction that they lead us. So far, we looked at the number one. And we saw one is the greatest expression of unity, harmony, and equality. The fulfillment of number one is God. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then two, the number two, it denotes a difference or a contrast. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. After two, we went to three. Three is very prominent in the scriptures. It is the number of completeness. Three are the attributes of God. He's omniscient, he's omnipresent, and he's omnipotent. All-powerful, ever-present, and all-knowledgeable. The divisions of time, past, present, and future. Human capability, thought, word, and deed. The three ideas of matter, mineral, vegetable, and animal. And when it comes to divine completion, we saw in God that we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we also see that God is holy, holy, holy. We also saw that it is a number that correlates with the resurrection. It was on the third hour that the Lord was crucified. There were three hours that the earth was shrouded in darkness. He was raised from the dead on the third day. In his earthly ministry, Jesus raised up three people from the dead. Again, a widow's son, Jairus' daughter, and Lazarus. We moved on to the number four. Four is a number of creation. We saw that there are four elements, earth, fire, uh, air, and water. There are four divisions of a day, morning, noon, evening, and midnight. There are four seasons of the year, winter, spring, summer, and fall, and four points on the compass, north, south, east, and west. 
After four came five. Five is the number of grace. Five books of the law. Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, is the fifth book of the Bible, and it's by God's grace that he gave us the knowledge of sin. We have seen five sacrifices in the book of Leviticus and are studying Leviticus on Thursday evenings. And it was upon the cross of Christ that there were five places that the blood that washed away our sins flowed from the Lord's head, from the Lord's back, from his hands, his feet, and his side. Then the number of six. Six is the number that is associated with man in his futility, shortcomings, and humanness. It was six days that man was to work by the sweat of his face. This was to be a continuous act all the way through until the day he died. We see the fulfillment of it in the book of Revelation and the number of the beast being 666, the totality of the flesh. Seventh, after the ministry, is after the ministry, excuse me, after the ministry of man comes the number seven. Seven is the number of spiritual Fulfillness, completion of spiritual perfection. We saw how the word of God is framed by the number seven. In Genesis, it starts with seven days of creation. In Exodus, it's all dismantled through seven seals of tribulation. We saw the Lord's seven I am statements, his seven sayings from the cross, and the seven sayings of the resurrected Lord. Now we come to the number eight. The number eight is the number of new beginnings, and it also has some associations with resurrection or new life as well. Because he found grace in the sight of the Lord, Noah was one of eight people who made it through the flood. It was these eight that God began anew with mankind. Again, just imagine that you go through this great cataclysmic event. God had told you to build an ark, speaking of these rains, and again, at that time, it hadn't rained. Noah didn't even know what rains were, couldn't have had a clue, even really what a flood was. If there's no rains, how would he know what a flood was? And this huge event, and all of these things that are bigger than them go on, and then they get out of the ark, and they're the beginning. The new beginning that God is starting with Noah. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, in reference to Adam and Eve, it says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, in reference to Noah, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Again, new beginnings. Circumcision was to be performed on the eighth day. And again, the fulfillment of of circumcision is in the Lord Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. It's a picture of the cutting away of the flesh of the heart and entering into a new life with the Lord Jesus Christ. I was circumcised. We were circumcised, if you will, on the day that we became born again. Again, the flesh of the heart was cut away and we entered into that new life with Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, in him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29, for he is not a Jew who is one outward, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inward, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit not in the letter whose praises is not from men, but from God. The law told the leader of his household that he was to offer to the Lord his firstborn son on the eighth day. 
Don't get me wrong, he was not to sacrifice him, but he was to dedicate him to the Lord in a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice was to be made to him. Again, the Old Testament always pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And the firstborn is to be dedicated to the Lord just as Jesus truly was. Exodus twenty-two twenty-nine through 30 You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. So the firstborn of all of your animals, those were to be sacrificed. A human sacrifice is an unclean offering to the Lord. So you would dedicate your son again, and you would make the appropriate sacrifice. The firstborn son would symbolize the new beginning of a new family and great promises for the future taking that picture of that firstborn son and circumcision together. It's why circumcisions to the Jews were to be perpetually done. It was the idea was the fulfillment of the promises of God. First delivered to Abraham, but again, you put yourself in the picture of a husband and wife on their wedding night. Circumcision would always represent what could possibly happen through that family. It was every young woman's desire. We enter into the season, and my wife and I just watched the nativity movie, the it was last night. Mary, she was blessed among women. Why? Because the promise of the coming Messiah was to be fulfilled in her. Now, we know this was to be a virgin birth, but again, every man and woman on their wedding night, maybe it's going to be through us. Maybe Messiah is finally going to come. When it comes to new life, as far as resurrection, it was on the eighth day that the Lord was raised from the dead. The Bible speaks of eight individual resurrections. There's the raising of the sons of widows in 1 Kings 17 and Luke 7. There's the raising of a child of a rich person, both in 2 Kings 4 and Mark chapter 5. There's the bringing back of life of a full-grown man in 2 Kings 13 and John chapter 11. And then in the book of Acts, there's two instances there. Peter, as he raises Tabitha or Dorcas back to life, and then Paul, as he raises Eutychus. Eutychus is the man who fell asleep at the window as Paul was teaching and fell to his death and he was resurrected. That's why we keep all of you guys at floor level. We haven't had any death of anybody falling out of a chair. We have had people snore before, though. When I was at Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, I used to teach the, uh, the men's study in the morning. And I think it started, I don't remember if it started at 6 or 6.30. And every time we had this one guy, he would sit off to the side and he would snore. And I'd have to tell him, well, you wake him up again, and they'd wake him up, and he'd kind of, uh-huh, and then he'd fall back asleep, and he'd start snoring again. It was still good that he was there, I guess. It was eight days after instructing his disciples about his death and resurrection that Jesus gave them a living illustration. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verse 27, the transfiguration. So Jesus has just been given his, or just had given his disciples instruction. Again, they've cast their lot with him. All of their hope and trust is in him. They truly believe that he's the Messiah. And then he tells them that he's going to be delivered to the Jews and he's going to be crucified. He also mentioned the part about the resurrection, but they didn't really hear that, I don't think. But again, that's when Peter said that far be it from him that that would happen. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, because... Again, it's not about Peter dying for Jesus. It's all about Jesus dying for Peter, dying for all of mankind. But really, the idea here is, is this concept of resurrection. Man, well, 
in that day, they knew of the Old Testament references to being brought, brought back to life. But still, could they truly understand the concept of resurrection? In, in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 27, Jesus said, But I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. When he says the kingdom of God, the idea here is, is the glory of God. Well, we know that Peter, James, and John were on that mountain and they saw the glory of God. Verse 28, now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings. So they're going to get this living illustration of new beginnings and it happens on eight days after they were told about these things. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he, that Jesus, took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And he prayed the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. Again, can you imagine Peter, James, and John seeing this and seeing what they're seeing is? And it's as if there's the Lord in all of his humanness, but there's a little bit of the humanness being pulled aside, and they're getting a glimpse of the glory of God. Now, we're told that we don't know what Jesus is going to be, but we do know we are going to be like him. And they're seeing this glorified body, and one day we are going to have a glorified body as well. But it says, he, as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. Moses, again, is a picture of the law. Elijah is the picture of the prophets who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so it's very, very rich picture here. Now you have Jesus in his glorified body. And, and we're told here that Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and spoke of his decease. We saw them in their glorified bodies. And so what they're getting a picture of is Jesus Christ, and they're seeing how both the law and the prophets are pointing towards the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, if you look throughout the Old Testament, what are you seeing? Always pointing towards the coming Messiah, but then the death and the resurrection of Messiah. But we also see that not only was Jesus glorified, Moses and Elijah is glorified, are glorified as well. And again, we do not know how they knew that it was Moses and Elijah. I assume later on, after the fact, Jesus told them. Verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish. So again, that's something that the law and the prophets have been speaking about since the beginning, since really Genesis chapter 3. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Peter again not really understanding everything, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So again, Peter's a little bit confused. He's putting Jesus on par with Moses and Elijah. Well, geez, those guys, Moses and Elijah, are, they were just the ones who were pointing towards the Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 34, while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed. Verse 34 is Peter's correction here. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And the voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And so here's Peter, we'll build these three tabernacles, these three dwelling places up here on this mountain. 
and we'll have Moses, we'll have Elijah, and we'll have Jesus Christ. And the idea that the three will be together and the three will be equal. But God is correcting him. God, it's as if he peers out from the heavens and says, pointing at Jesus, this is my beloved son. Moses was not his beloved son. Elijah was not his beloved son. And he says, hear him. See, they were always pointing towards him. But now who do we have? We have the word. We have the word that has become flesh and is dwelling with mankind. And what we're seeing here is the priority of Jesus Christ. Because it's only through Jesus Christ that we understand the law. It's only through Jesus Christ that the prophets' prophecies are validated. Jesus, we're told in Revelation chapter 19, is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy always needs to point towards Jesus Christ. Back then, it was his first coming. Prophecy today always needs to point towards the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's always about Jesus Christ. Verse 36, when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days of any of the things that they have seen. I would imagine a big reason they didn't tell anybody because it was bigger than them. Can you imagine having the privilege on going up on that mountain? And again, these things aren't just stories. These are realities that happened. We were there. Peter would later on say, I was there and I saw the glory of the Lord on that mountain. I was an eyewitness to that. John will be reiterated as well. And again, these are things that just altered their thinking. And as Jesus was crucified and resurrected, and as these men were filled with the Holy Spirit, all of these lessons now would truly come to life in their heart to such a degree that they would be willing to give of their lives. Again, just looking at Peter, Peter throughout the scriptures was, I'm sorry, the gospels was always getting things wrong. But then we see in Acts chapter two, a big change come over Peter. He is now a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter would later on go and give of his life. They would all give of their lives. John didn't die, but he still gave of his life. He died a natural death. All the others were put to death. But nonetheless, these men who in the Gospels are coward and confused, what could cause them to change? Well, it was the reality of these lessons and who Jesus Christ was and the receiving of these promises and holding them dear so that their lives were no longer dear. It was all about the word of God. And so, again, it was on this eighth day, and again, we just have a little bit of a hint here that points us towards this new life and these new beginnings. Other notable eights, the New Testament has eight authors. Jesus showed himself alive eight times after his resurrection, and at one last eight for our day. I've spoken about this before, usually when we're going through Matthew, but nonetheless, it's something that is, it's, it's worth taking a look at, it's worth considering, but again, also knowing and understanding nobody knows the day. Nobody knows the day of the Lord's return. Nobody knows the day of the rapture. But Jesus said, look for the signs. Well, we see this sign. If you do the math and you follow the timetable, you'll see Adam and Eve, they were created about 6,000 years ago. If you go through the scriptures and you do the math, you see that Adam and Eve were created about 6,000 years ago, according to the word of God. Well, we saw, and we were reminded tonight, that six is the number of man. Man, we know, was created on the sixth day, and six days are appointed for his labor in the curse. 
So with 6,000 years from the point of creation, when would that end? That would end the year 2000. Now we're speaking in very rough pictures. And again, this is just for a picture. So man has been working and toiling for over 6,000 years. Now, we head in, as after the year 2000, to the next 1,000 years, next 1,000 years, a 7,000 year period, or 1,000 year period of the seventh group of 1,000 years. We've been through 6,000 years, we're heading into the 7,000 years, the point I'm trying to make here. Seven is the number of spiritual perfection, but also it's the number of the Sabbath. After 6,000 years of man's labor, we could now be at the very edge of the door of the millennial rule age. Numerically speaking, it kind of makes sense. We're entering into this Sabbath, this seven year where we enter in, because of the end times uh, theology that we've studied, into this millennial age rest. We see this in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 4 and 6. Now, as we were studying it on Wednesday morning, ladies haven't gotten there yet, you see... 6,000 years of man and his work, futility of man. Then we have the 7,000th year, and we have that Sabbath, or maybe the millennial age rule. But then, if that's true, what do we have after that? Well, eight is the number of new beginnings, so the eighth millennium would usher in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. And you can say, well, we're 2014 going on 2015. Aren't you 15 years too late? Well, we don't know exactly the amount of years because if you knew the exact amount of years, then we would know when everything would happen. And again, this is not definite. I'm not making any predictions, but it's very interesting to scripturally look. And you look at, you just take this clue and you build upon it with so many other little things that are revealed in the word of God. We're getting really, really close We're getting close to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul thought that he was really, really close to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we to do? Remember, we're told to watch. We're told to watch, and it needs to be an active watch. As we saw this morning, we need to be people of prayer. We need to be in the Word of God, and we need to be witnessing. But we need to watch, because the Lord is coming, and He's coming at a time when we least expect it. Now, there's a series of numbers, 9, 10, and 11, other notable numbers after 8. 9, again, I've I've looked at quite a few sources, and some have said it's the number of finality. Others say it's the number of judgment. 10, the number of divine order. 11 is the number of disorder. Again, that's what was said, and there was nothing really solid in the biblical evidence. There was just nothing to really dive deep into to really look at them closely. But then we come to the number that's very common throughout scriptures is the number 12. 12 is the number of divine government or order. It was God who established the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 16. 12 is going to be very prominent in your permanent home. Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 16. John's getting this picture of these glorious events that are happening in the end. Now we have this new Jerusalem that has descended after heaven and earth are burnt away. And now we have a new heaven and a new earth. And he's given us a picture of this new Jerusalem. 
It says in Revelation 21, verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. We know this isn't the church here. This is verse 2 of chapter 21. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So he's speaking of this new Jerusalem. And he carried me, and now I'm back in verse 10, same chapter. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like most precious, a most precious stone, like jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So each gate has probably a plaque over, or maybe just directly onto the gate of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. So it's square, three gates on four sides. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, or maybe 12 thresholds, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And the measure of the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, there's that number again, its length, breadth, and height are equal. So what we have are those who have represented God in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel. Those in the New Testament, those who are representatives of the 12 apostles. Each gate will have inscribed upon it one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and the threshold of that gate will have upon it the names of one of the apostles. And again, divine government or order. During the tribulation, the Lord is going to call 12,000 evangelists from each of the 12 tribes of Israel to revive Israel. This was one of our questions, clarification on the 144,000 but it's divisions of 12. These are definitely, the Bible goes to great lengths to tell us that these are not Jehovah Witnesses, that these are Jews, that these are Jews. And there's going to be that time during the tribulation that God's attention is turned back towards Israel. We have a God who's gracious, who desires that nobody should perish. Israel today is a very secular society, very hard-hearted. But during that time, Israel is going to experience tribulation as they've never experienced tribulation before, and they as a nation have experienced a lot of tribulation. And God is going to raise up these 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, 144,000 evangelists to go in and to minister to them, to witness them, and there's going to be great revival. There's going to be a big changing of heart from Israel back to the Lord. And again, we have... God dealing through Israel in the Old Testament, and then we have God's focus away from Israel to the Gentile and the New Testament. Jews will still get saved during the New Testament days, during these days, during the church age, but nonetheless, his focus is to the Gentile. Then there's going to be the rapture of the church, and there's going to be the tribulation. There's still going to be Gentiles saved during the time of tribulation, although his focus will be back towards nation Israel. There were 12 loaves of showbread in the tabernacle slash temple, 
And the priest had 12 stones on his breastplate that represented the people that he was representing to God. It's very clear that God wanted the priest to remember that his duty, his ministry was to the people. And God has given him that awesome privilege because God desired to minister to these people. And he was the man in the middle. He was the man in the middle, as I've said many times, ministering God to the people and ministering the people to God. And he never wanted the priest to forget that. And so he had these 12 stones that were on his breastplate. And these 12 stones represented the 12 tribes. But even deeper than that, it represented all of the people. And he would be reminded as he would see those jewels or maybe the, the light within the temple of the menorah reflecting off of those and into his eyes that the reason that I am here is that I am making sacrifice or atonement or whatever the purpose was that day. I am representing people to God because that's God's most precious commodity is his people. It's why we're told in James chapter 3, one, let not many of you desire to be teachers. You'll be held to a higher degree of accountability. And then there were the 12 loaves of showbread. Once again, a reminder to the priest that it was only through the provision of the people that he was able to have, well, be provided for. And so he needed to faithfully minister to the people. And then I think on top of all that, to draw his attention to that, there was the table of incense. Table of incense that represented the prayers of the people. The ladies are studying that in the book of Revelation. Again, there's that strong association with smell. And the incense was to be kept pure. That recipe for incense was not to be used for anything else but the temple. So when the priest would smell that incense, he would be reminded. As he is in there making intercession for the people, there's millions of people out there. Let's just look at the Day of Atonement. Millions of people out there praying. Praying and seeking God. And he has the privilege of being in there being in the temple and standing in that gap. And the idea was there would be that conviction that he needed to be faithful, he needed to be true, and he needed to be right before God so that these people would be properly represented before their holy God. And he'd be reminded that constantly whenever he would smell that specific incense. The first recorded words of the Lord occurred when he was 12 years old. And in Matthew, we have a tale of two twelves turn over to matthew chapter 9 and really in these twelves you see the futility of human government of human uh, of man's inability to provide for himself apart from god in matthew chapter 9 verses 18 through 26 matthew 9 18 through 26 And while he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. And she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Then Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. It's a cultural thing. And he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. So she was obviously dead at that point. But when 
the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went out into all of the land. Again, we've got these two contrasts. This girl, we're told in the scriptures, she was 12 years old. And you've got this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Now, if you're bleeding, if you're a woman and you're bleeding, and it's a menstrual bleeding kind of a thing, that means you're unclean. This woman has been unclean. She's been socially unacceptable for 12 years. And there was not a thing that either she or anybody else could do about it. And then you've got this 12-year-old girl. She's dead. It's obviously dead. And there's not a thing that anybody can do for her. And so we have this series of contrasts between Jarius's daughter and this certain woman, or maybe Jarius, but one was famous. He was a well-known man. She was anonymous. And so this contrast to encompass all humanity. He was wealthy. She was living in poverty. He was a leader. She was an outcast. He experienced the joy of a daughter for 12 years. She was in misery for 12 years. One involved in serving, the other again, an outcast from society. But the same, they have a commonality here. There's this helplessness, there's deception, what man can do and what man can't do, there's disease, and there's death. Very opposite people, but the same need. Neither could help themselves in their situation. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 16, and how does a wise man die? Same as a fool. And again, there's the encompassment of all humanity. Man can do absolutely nothing for himself. He's in a helpless, hopeless situation until the Lord enters in because they're both about to experience a divine intersection. One of those times when we know that our path is crossing with a living God. Now again, think of the state of this woman. Got to be frustrated. We're told elsewhere that she saw many doctors and they could do absolutely nothing for her. And because of the law, Leviticus chapter 15, she's been outcast. This woman hasn't hugged a child in over 12 years. She hasn't embraced a husband or had a relationship with a boyfriend for over 12 years. And this blood continues to flow and I'm sure her health is affected. But now, instead of the law in the Lord Jesus Christ, what has she found? Just this one day by this, in her mind, this chance crossing, she's found the grace of God. The grace of God that has made her clean. Again, she's been considered to be unclean all of this time. The grace of God that has dynamically changed the course of her life. Now she's able to have relationships, and all of her relationships are based upon this one momentary relationship with Jesus Christ. I know the day that I got saved, I did not wake up and say, I think I'll get saved today. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who crossed my path and altered my life. I was something that was unclean, and Christ has made me clean. So the heart of this woman, she broke through the crowd of unbelief, of apathy and humanism, and as she breaks through, what occurs? Not so much a stopping of the blood, but the idea is the healing at its source. And Mark, we're told, the fountain dried up. And that's what God does. He does that work inside at the source. Because what was wrong with me? What was wrong with you? It was your heart. It was the inner man, the inner person before a holy God. And God changed that. He caused you to become alive. And again, we've got this man with this woman, I'm sorry, this, this daughter 
And his daughter had to be the apple of his eye. And there she is. He's been able to do so much for her, but now she's sick and about to die and there's not a thing that he is able to do and enters in the Lord Jesus Christ that brings her back to life. Human government, best human government is able to do is make man comfortable until the day that he dies. But it's never going to change the inner man. It'll never change the course of humanity. And we've seen it throughout all of the ages. It did not accomplish what Christ was able to accomplish in just a short period of time that had ramifications throughout the ages. Our last number, our last number in this series is the number 40. 40 is the number of testings and trials. Those things that the Lord allows into our lives for the purpose of change, for the purpose of making us more like Him. We see in Moses' life how it was broken up into three sets of 40. There was the season of his worldly life, a season that we all experience. Season when he had the best of all that the world had to offer. He was a prince in the most powerful nation in the world for all those 40 years. But then, when he tried to accomplish God's task based upon his old life, God sent him to the backside of the wilderness for 40 years of training. 40 years of training, of trials, of hardship, so that he would learn not to depend upon his own strength. Because you see, a 40-year-old Moses, he's still strong. And he's going to depend upon what he's able to do, so God's going to give him time out for 40 years, because an 80-year-old man does not measure up strength-wise to a 40-year-old man. Now, in his weakness, he will be able to come strong. So, the season of his worldly life, the seasons in the backside of the wilderness, and then that last portion of his life, the last 40 years that he was prepared. And even though he was prepared, you look at Moses' life, those 40 years were still a picture of trials. Trials and testings that taught him continually dependency upon God because that never seems to be a lesson that any of us really learn. It's a process. It's a process that takes all of our lives. There were two instances of Moses on Mount Sinai for 40 days to receive the law. Amongst were earthquakes, thunders, and lightnings. The spies he sent into the promised land were there for 40 days. It caused the people to wonder. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of unbelief. The rains fell for 40 days and 40 nights as God brought judgment upon the world in Noah's day. Jonah's witness to Nineveh was for 40 days. The prophet Ezekiel lay on his right side for 40 days to symbolize Judah's sins and disobedience to the Lord. It was 40 years after the Lord's crucifixion that Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome. God told Israel that if they desired for a king to rule over him, that he would become a curse in their lives. The first three kings of Israel each ruled for 40 years, Saul, David, and Solomon, the king of kings and the lord of lords, fasted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Speaks of total destruction of the flesh and total dedication to the spirit. To die to the spirit, I'm sorry, to die to the flesh and to live to the spirit. And we see in this number, these trials that none of us really want to enter into. But look what God's accomplished through trials in your lives. I know what he's accomplished in the trials in my life. It's brought me closer to the Lord. 
It's taught me dependency. Again, not a lesson that I have learned, but I'm in the process of learning. And I hope to continue to learn and learn until I go to be with the Lord. And lastly, it's estimated that there are 40 authors of the Bible, that those who are called of God would not enter into judgment, but receive and live by every word of God. But understand that in the midst of hardship, that God is doing a work in my life. Behold, all things work together for the glory of God. Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And that's the most important of all numbers, the number of days that we have, the gift that God has blessed us with, the number of days that we have had with our loved ones, the number of days that we have had as a child of God in the family of God, the number of days that God has given me to perform his work. Nobody's promised tomorrow. We're not promised next week. We're promised this moment. We're promised this preparation. Chances are we'll be given next week the grace of God who's so, so, so wonderful to us. But nonetheless, I need to hold every day, every moment. I need to hold it dear and hold it precious. Every opportunity, given over to God's glory. Not wasting time and trying to figure out codes in the scriptures and all of these things, but just seeing the plain things that point us towards this relationship with Jesus Christ and the great love that he has for you. I see some of the things that are out there, even in the Calvary Chapel movement, that are just so out there and just so, so random or whatever. Man, just when the plain teaching of God's word, there's a lifetime here. We've taught through in our existence as a church the New Testament, and we're going through it again. I, I've taught Colossians already, and we're going through Colossians again in the morning. And I look at my old studies to glean from that, and the studies aren't, I mean, it's not different from the other one, but you would never hear the study that I taught so many years ago and say, well, that's the same thing, because it's not. Because God continues to reveal new things every single day of our lives. And so may we be a people who learn to number, not all this others, but number our lives, number the days of our lives, and to understand that God has given me however many days it is, and hold every day precious. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, for your word that guides us and directs us. And I pray, Father, that we would have that understanding, Lord, that the number of our days is in your hands, and there's no better place for them to be. And so, Father, I pray for those who have come out tonight that you would watch over and keep them, that you would bless them. I pray, Father, that you would go before them in this week to come, that you would use them in mighty ways, that you would speak to them and guide them in the midst of this life. Father, I pray for family and friends who were ministered to this past weekend on this holiday. And just pray, Father, for the opportunities that we had in your word and to be that witness that, Father, we would truly see that it bears fruit. And so once again, just fill us with your spirit. Use us in mighty ways for this week to come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All stand, please.